Section 18 of The Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed Political Discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1. The Annals, Book One, Part Five: The Rise of Germanicus. The same year died Julia, for her lewdness, long since banished by her father Augustus into the Isle of Pandateria, and afterwards to the city of Regium upon the Straits of Sicily. Whilst Caius and Lucius, her sons by Agrippa, yet lived, she was given in marriage to Tiberius and despised him as a man beneath her. Nor any motive so cogent as this had Tiberius for his retirement to Rhodes. When he came to the empire she was already under the pressures of infamy and exile, and since the death of Agrippa Posthumus, destitute of all hope and support. Yet such multiplied distresses softened not the emperor who, by a long train of miseries and continued want, caused her finally to perish, as he supposed that in the distance of her banishment her tragical death would remain concealed. From the same root was derived his cruelty to Sempronius Gracchus, the descendant of a family eminently noble, himself of a lively wit and prevailing eloquence, but viciously applied. He, while Julia was yet Agrippa's wife, had debauched her. Neither with Agrippa ended their vicious league, but after she was given to Tiberius he still persisted her adulterer, and towards her husband inspired her with notable aversion and contumacy. The letters, too, by her written to her father, full of asperity against Tiberius and labouring his ruin, were thought to have been composed by Gracchus. He was, therefore, banished to Circina, an island in the African sea, where, for fourteen years, he suffered exile. The soldiers dispatched to the assassination found him upon a rising by the shore, to himself presaging nothing joyful from their arrival. Of them he only desired a short respite to send his last will in a letter to Aliaria, his wife, and then extended his neck to the sword of the assassins, a constancy in death not unworthy the Sempronian name. In his life he had degenerated. Some authors have related that these soldiers were not sent directly from Rome, but by Lucius Aspranus, proconsul of Africa, by the policy and command of Tiberius, who in vain hoped to have cast upon Aspranus the imputation of the murder. There was likewise this year an admission of new rites, by the establishment of another college of priests, one sacred to the deity of Augustus, as formerly Titus Tatius, to preserve the religious rites of the Sabines, had founded the fraternity of the Titian priests. To fill the society, one in twenty the most considerable Romans were drawn by lot, and to them were added Tiberius, Drusus, Claudius, and Germanicus. The games, in honour of Augustus, began then first to be embroiled by emulation among the players, and by the strife of parties in their behalf. Augustus had countenanced these players, and their art, in complacence to Maecenas, who was mad in love with Bathyllus the comedian. Nor to such favourite amusements of the populace had he any aversion himself, he rather judged it an acceptable courtesy to mingle with the multitude in these their popular pleasures. Different was the temper of Tiberius, different his politics. To severer manners, however, he durst not yet reduce the people, so many years indulged in licentious gaieties. In the consulship of Drusus Caesar and Caius Norbanus, a triumph was decreed to Germanicus, while the war still subsisted. He was preparing with all diligence to prosecute it the following summer, but began much sooner by a sudden eruption early in the spring into the territories of the Cadians, 
and in anticipation of the campaign which proceeded from the hopes given him of the dissension amongst the enemy caused by the opposite parties of arminius and segestes two men signally known to the romans upon different accounts the last for his firm faith the first for faith violated arminius was the incendiary of germany but by segestus had been given repeated warnings of an intended revolt particularly during the festival immediately preceding the insurrection he had even advised varus to secure him and arminius and all the other chiefs for that the multitude thus bereft of their leaders would dare to attempt nothing and varus have time to distinguish crimes and such as committed none but by his own fate and the sudden violence of arminius varus fell segestus though by the weight and unanimity of his nation he was forced into the war yet remained at a constant variance with arminius a domestic quarrel too heightened their hate as arminius had carried away the daughter of segestus already betrothed to another and the same relations which amongst friends prove bonds of tenderness were fresh stimulations of wrath to an obnoxious son and an offended father upon these encouragements germanicus committed to the command of Cecina four legions five thousand auxiliaries and some bands of germans dwellers on this side of the rhine drawn suddenly together he led himself as many legions with double the number of allies and erecting a fort in mount taunus upon the old foundations of one raised by his father rushed full march against the cadians having behind him left lucius apronius to secure the ways from the fury of inundations for as the roads were then dry and the rivers low events in that climate exceedingly rare he had without check expedited his march but against his return apprehended the violence of rains and floods upon the cadians he fell with such surprise that all the weak through sex or age were instantly taken or slaughtered their youth by swimming over the adrana escaped and attempted to force the romans from building a bridge to follow them but by dint of arrows and engines were repulsed then having in vain tried to gain terms of peace some submitted to germanicus the rest abandoned their villages and dwellings and dispersed themselves in the woods matium the capital of the nation he burnt ravaged all the open country and bent his march to the rhine nor durst the enemy harass his rear an unusual practice of theirs when sometimes they fly more through craft than affright the cheruscans indeed were addicted to assist the cadians but terrified from attempting it by Cecina, who moved about with his forces from place to place and by routing the marsians who had dared to engage him restrained all their efforts soon after arrived deputies from segestus praying relief against the combination and violence of his countrymen by whom he was held besieged as more powerful amongst them than his was the credit of arminius since it was he who had advised the war this is the genius of barbarians to judge that men are to be trusted in proportion as they are fierce and in public commotions ever to prefer the most resolute to the other deputies segestus had added segemundus his son but the young man faltered a while as his own heart accused him for that the year when germany revolted he who had been by the romans created priest of the altar of the ubians rent the sacerdotal tiara and fled to the revolters yet encouraged by the roman clemency he undertook the execution of his father's orders was himself graciously received and then conducted with a guard to the frontiers of gaul germanicus led back his army to the relief of segestus and was rewarded with success he fought the besiegers and rescued him with a great train of his relations and followers amongst them too were ladies of illustrious rank particularly the wife of arminius she who was the daughter of segestus 
a lady more of the spirit of her husband than that of her father, a spirit so unsubdued that from her eyes captivity forced not a tear, nor from her lips a breath in the style of a supplicant. Not a motion of her hands, nor a look, escaped her, but fast across her breast she held her arms, and upon her heavy womb her eyes were immovably fixed. There were likewise carried Roman spoils, taken at the slaughter of Varus and his army, and then divided as prey amongst many of those who were now prisoners. At the same time appeared Segestus, of superior stature, and from a confidence in his good understanding with the Romans, undaunted. In this manner he spoke. This is not the first day that to the Roman people I have approved my faith and adherence. From the moment I was, by the deified Augustus, presented with the freedom of the city, I have continued by your interest to choose my friends, by your interest to denominate my enemies, from no hate of mine to my native country, for odious are traitors even to the party which they embrace, but, because the same measures were equally conducing to the benefit of the Romans and of the Germans, and I was for peace rather than war. For this reason I applied to Varus, the then general, with an accusation against Arminius, who from me had my ravished daughter, and with you violated the faith of leagues. But growing impatient with the slowness and inactivity of Varus, and well apprised how little security was to be hoped from the laws, I pressed him to seize myself and Arminius and his accomplices. Witness that fatal night, to me I wish it had been the last. More to be lamented than defended are the sad events which followed. I moreover cast Arminius into irons, and was myself cast into irons by his faction, and as soon as to you, Caesar, I could apply, you see I prefer old engagements to present violence, tranquillity to combustions, with no view of my own to interest or reward, but to banish from me the imputation of perfidiousness. For the German nation, too, I would thus become a mediator, if peradventure they will choose rather to repent than be destroyed." For my son, I entreat you, have mercy upon his youth, pardon his error. That my daughter is your prisoner by force I own. In your own breast it wholly lies, under which character you will treat her, whether as one who has conceived by Arminius, or as one by me begotten. The answer of Germanicus was gracious. He promised indemnity to his children and kindred, and to himself a safe retreat in one of the old provinces, then returned with his army, and by the direction of Tiberius received the title of imperator. The wife of Arminius brought forth a male child, and the boy was brought up at Ravenna. His unhappy conflicts afterwards with the contumelious insults of fortune will be remembered in their place. The desertion of Segestus being divulged, with his gracious reception from Germanicus, affected his countrymen variously, with hope or anguish, as they were prone or averse to the war. Naturally violent was the spirit of Arminius, and now, by the captivity of his wife, and by the fate of his child doomed to bondage, though yet unborn, enraged, even to distraction. He flew about amongst the Cheruscans, calling them to arms, to arm against Segestus, to arm against Germanicus. Invectives followed his fury. A blessed father this Segestus, he cried, a mighty general this Germanicus, invincible warriors these Romans, so many troops have made prisoner of a woman, it is not thus that I conquer. Before me three legions fell, and three lieutenant-generals, open and honourable is my method of war, nor waged with big-bellied women, but against men at arms, and treason is none of my weapons. Still to be seen are the Roman standards in the German groves, there by me hung up, and devoted to our country gods. Let Segestius live a slave in a conquered province, let him recover to his son a foreign priesthood. With the German nations he can never obliterate his reproach, that through him they have seen, between the Elbe and the Rhine, rods and axes, and the Roman toga. 
To other nations who know not the Roman domination, executions and tributes are also unknown, evils which we too have cast off, in spite of that Augustus now dead, and enrolled with the deities, in spite too of Tiberius his chosen successor. Let us not, after this, dread a mutinous army, and a boy without experience, their commander. But if you love your country, your kindred, your ancient liberty and laws, better than tyrants and new colonies, let Arminius rather lead you to liberty and glory than the wicked Segestus to the infamy of bondage. By these stimulations not the Cheruscans only were roused, but all the neighboring nations, and into the confederacy was drawn Inguomerus, paternal uncle to Arminius, a man long since in high credit with the Romans. Hence a new source of fear to Germanicus, who, to avoid the shock of their whole forces and to divert the enemy, sent Caecina with forty Roman cohorts to the river Amesia, through the territories of the Bructarians. Peta, the prefect, led the cavalry by the confines of the Frisians. He himself embarked four legions on the lake, and upon the bank of the said river the whole body met, foot, horse, and the fleet. The Chaucians, upon offering their assistance, were taken into the service, but the Bructarians, setting fire to their effects and dwellings, were routed by Stratinius, by Germanicus dispatched against them with a band lightly armed. As this party were engaged between slaughter and plunder, he found the eagle of the nineteenth legion lost in the overthrow of Varus. The army marched next to the furthest borders of the Bructarians, and the whole country between the rivers Amesia and Lupia was laid waste. Not far hence lay the forest of Teutoburgium, and in it the bones of Varus and the legions, by report still unburied. Hence Germanicus became inspired with a tender passion to play the last offices to the legions and their leader. The like tenderness also affected the whole army. They were moved with compassion, some for the fate of their friends, others for that of their relations, here tragically slain. They were struck with the doleful casualties of war and the sad lot of humanity. Cecina was sent before to examine the gloomy recesses of the forest, to lay bridges over the pools, and upon the deceitful marshes, causeways. The army entered the doleful solitude, hideous to sight, hideous to memory. First they saw the camp of Varus, wide in circumference, and the three distinct spaces allotted to the different eagles showed the number of the legions. Further they beheld the ruinous entrenchment, and the ditch nigh choked up. In it the remains of the army were supposed to have made their last effort, and in it to have found their graves. In the open fields lay their bones, all bleached and bare, some separate, some on heaps, just as they had happened to fall, flying for their lives or resisting unto death. Here were scattered the limbs of horses, there pieces of broken javelins, and the trunks of trees bore the skulls of men. In the adjacent groves were the savage altars, where the barbarians had made a horrible immolation of the tribunes and principal centurions. Those who survived the slaughter, having escaped from captivity and the sword, related the sad particulars to the rest. Here the commanders of the legions were slain, there we lost the eagles, here Varus had his first wound. There he gave himself another, and perished by his own unhappy hand. In that place, too, stood the tribunal whence Arminius harangued. In this quarter, for the execution of his captives, he erected so many gibbets, in that such a number of funeral trenches were digged, and with these circumstances of pride and despite he insulted the ensigns and eagles. Thus the Roman army buried the bones of the three legions, six years after the slaughter, nor could any one distinguish whether he gathered the particular remains of a stranger or those of a kinsman. But all considered the whole as their friends, the whole as their relations. With heightened resentments against the foe, at once sad and revengeful, 
In this pious office, so acceptable to the dead, Germanicus was a partner in the woe of the living, and upon the common tomb laid the first sod, a proceeding not liked by Tiberius, whether it were that upon every action of Germanicus he put a perverse meaning, or believed that the affecting spectacle of the unburied slain would sink the spirit of the army and heighten their terror of the enemy, as also that a general vested as augur with the intendancy of religious rites became defiled by assisting at the solemnities of the dead. Arminius retiring into desert and pathless places was pursued by Germanicus, who, as soon as he reached him, commanded the horse to advance, and dislodge the enemy from the post they had possessed. Arminius, having directed his men to keep close together and draw near to the woods, wheeled suddenly about, and to those whom he had hid in the forest gave the signal to rush out. The Roman horse, now engaged by a new army, became disordered, and to their relief some cohorts were sent, but likewise broken by the press of those that fled, and great was the consternation so many ways increased. The enemy, too, were already pushing them into the morass, a place well known to the pursuers. As to the unapprised Romans it had proved pernicious, had not Germanicus drawn out the legions in order of battle. Hence the enemy became terrified, our men reassured, and both retired with equal loss and advantage. Germanicus presently, after returning with the army to the river Amesia, reconducted the legions, as he had brought them, in the fleet. Part of the horse were ordered to march along the seashore to the Rhine. Cecina, who led his own men, was warned that though he was to return through known roads, yet he should with all speed pass the causeway, called the Long Bridges. It is a narrow track between vast marshes, and formerly raised by Lucius Domitius. The marshes themselves are of an uncertain soil, here full of mud, there of heavy sticking clay, or traversed with various currents. Round about are woods which rise gently from the plain, and were already filled with soldiers by Arminius, who, by shorter ways and a running march, had arrived there before our men, who were loaded with arms and baggage. Cecina, who was perplexed how at once to repair the causeway decayed by time and to repulse the foe, resolved at last to encamp in the place, that whilst some were employed in the work, others might maintain the fight. The barbarians strove violently to break our station and to fall upon the entrenchers, harassed our men, assaulted the works, changed their attacks, and pushed everywhere. With the shouts of the assailants the cries of the workmen were confusedly mixed, and all things equally combined to distress the Romans, the place deep with ooze sinking under those who stood, slippery to such as advanced, their armor heavy, the waters deep, nor in them could they launch their javelins. The Cheruscans, on the contrary, were inured to encounters in the bogs, their persons tall, their spears long, such as could wound at a distance. At last the legions, already yielding, were by night redeemed from an unequal combat. But night interrupted not the activity of the Germans, become by success indefatigable. Without refreshing themselves with sleep, they diverted all the courses of the springs which rise in the neighboring mountains, and turned them into the plains. Thus the Roman camp was flooded, the work, as far as they had carried it, overturned, and the labor of the poor soldiers renewed and doubled. To Cecina this year proved the fortieth of his sustaining as officer or soldier the functions of arms, a man in all the vicissitudes of war, prosperous or disastrous, well experienced, and thence undaunted. Weighing, therefore, with himself all probable events and expedients, he could devise no other than that of restraining the enemy to the woods, till he had sent forward the wounded men and baggage, for from the mountains to the marshes there stretched a plain, fit only to hold a little army. To this purpose the legions were thus appointed, the fifth had the right wing, and the one and twentieth the left, the first led the van, the twentieth defended the rear. A restless night it was to both armies, but in different ways. 
the barbarians feasted and caroused and with songs of triumph or with horrid and threatening cries filled all the plain and echoing woods amongst the romans were feeble fires sad silence or broken words they leaned drooping here and there against the pales or wandered disconsolately about the tents like men without sleep but not quite awake a frightful dream too terrified the general he thought he heard and saw quintilius varus rising out of the marsh all besmeared with blood stretching forth his hand and calling upon him but that he rejected the call and pushed him away at break of day the legions posted on the wings through contumacy or affright deserted their stations and took sudden possession of a field beyond the bogs neither did arminius fall straight upon them however open they lay to his assault but when he perceived the baggage set fast in mire and ditches the soldiers about it disorderly and embarrassed the ranks and ensigns in confusion and as usual in a time of distress every one in haste to save himself but slow to obey his officer he then commanded his germans to break in behold he vehemently cried behold again varus and his legions subdued by the same fate thus he cried and at the same time with a select body broke quite through our forces and chiefly against the horse directed his havoc so that the ground becoming slippery by their blood and the slime of the marsh their feet flew from them and they cast their riders then galloping and stumbling amongst the ranks they overthrew all they met and trod to death all they overthrew the greatest difficulty was to maintain the eagles a storm of darts made it impossible to advance them and the rotten ground impossible to fix them cecina while he sustained the fight had his horse shot and having fallen was nigh taken but the first legion saved him our relief came from the greediness of the enemy who ceased slaying to seize the spoil hence the legions had respite to struggle into the fair field and firm ground nor was here an end to their miseries a palisade was to be raised an entrenchment digged their instruments too for throwing up and carrying earth and their tools for cutting turf were almost all lost no tents for the soldiers no remedies for the wounded and their food all defiled with mire or blood as they shared it in sadness amongst them they lamented that mournful night they lamented the approaching day to so many thousand men the last it happened that a horse which had broke his collar as he strayed about became frightened with noise and ran over some that were in his way this raised such a consternation in the camp from a persuasion that the germans in a body had forced an entrance that all rushed to the gates especially to the postern as the furthest from the foe and safer for flight cecina having found the vanity of their dread but unable to stop them either by his authority or by his prayers or indeed by force flung himself at last across the gate this prevailed, and their awe and tenderness of their general restrained them from running over his body, and the tribunes and centurions satisfied them the while that it was a false alarm. Then, calling them together, and desiring them to hear him with silence, he minded them of their difficulties and how to conquer them, that for their lives they must be indebted to their arms, but force was to be tempered with art, they must therefore keep close within their camp till the enemy, in hopes of taking it by storm, advanced then make a sudden sally on every side, and by this push they should break through the enemy and reach the Rhine. But if they fled, more forests remained to be traversed, deeper marshes to be passed, and the cruelty of a pursuing foe to be sustained. He laid before them the motives and fruits of victory, public rewards and glory, with every tender domestic consideration, as well as those of military exploits and praise. Of their dangers and sufferings he said nothing. He next distributed horses, first his own, then those of the tribunes and leaders of the legion, to the bravest soldiers impartially, that thus mounted they might begin the charge, followed by the foot. 
Amongst the Germans there was not less agitation from hopes of victory, greediness of spoil, and the opposite counsels of their leaders. Arminius proposed to let the Romans march off, and to beset them in their march, when engaged in bogs and fastnesses. The advice of Ingliomerus was fiercer, and thence more applauded by the barbarians. He declared, for forcing the camp, for that the victory would be quick, there would be more captives and entire plunder. As soon, therefore, as it was light, they rushed out upon the camp, cast hurdles into the ditch, attacked and grappled the palisade. Upon it few soldiers appeared, and these seemed frozen with fear. But as the enemy in swarms were climbing the ramparts, the signal was given to the cohorts. The cornets and trumpets sounded, and instantly, with shouts and impetuosity, they issued out, and begirt the assailants. Here are no thickets, they scornfully cried, no bogs, but an equal field and impartial gods. The enemy, who imagined few Romans remaining, fewer arms, and an easy conquest, were struck with the sounding trumpets, with the glittering armour, and every object of terror appeared double to them who expected none. They fell like men who, as they are void of moderation and prosperity, are also destitute of conduct and distress. Arminius forsook the fight unhurt. Inguiomerus grievously wounded. Their men were slaughtered as long as day and rage lasted. In the evening the legions returned, in the same want of provisions, and with more wounds, but in victory they found all things, health, vigour, and abundance. In the meantime a report had flown that the Roman forces were routed, and an army of Germans upon full march to invade Gaul, so that under the terror of this news there were those whose cowardice would have emboldened them to have demolished the bridge upon the Rhine, had not Agrippina restrained them from that infamous attempt. In truth, such was the undaunted spirit of the woman, that at this time she performed all the duties of a general, relieved the necessitous soldiers, upon the wounded bestowed medicines, and upon others' clothes. Caius Plinius, the writer of the German wars, relates that she stood at the end of the bridge as the legions returned, and accosted them with thanks and praises, a behaviour which sunk deep into the spirit of Tiberius, for that all this officiousness of hers, he thought, could not be upright, nor that it was against foreigners only she engaged the army, to the direction of the generals nothing was now left, when a woman reviewed the companies, attended the eagles, and to the men distributed largesses, as if before she had shown but small tokens of ambitious designs in carrying her child, the son of the general, in a soldier's coat about the camp, with the title of Caesar Caligula. Already, in greater credit with the army, was Agrippina than the leaders of the legions, in greater than their generals, and a woman had suppressed sedition, which the authority of the emperor was not able to restrain. These jealousies were inflamed, and more were added by Sejanus, one who was well skilled in the temper of Tiberius, and purposely furnished him with sources of hatred to lie hid in his heart and be discharged with increase hereafter. Germanicus, in order to lighten the ships in which he had embarked his men, and fit their burden to the ebbs and shallows, delivered the second and fourteenth legions to Publius Vitellius to lead them by land. Vitellius at first had an easy march on dry ground, or ground moderately overflowed by the tide, when suddenly the fury of the north wind swelling the ocean, a constant effect of the equinox, the legions were surrounded and tossed with the tide, and the land was all on flood. The sea, the shore, the fields had the same tempestuous face, no distinction of depths from the shallows, none of firm from deceitful footing. They were overturned by the billows, swallowed down by the eddies, and horses, baggage, and drowned men encountered each other and floated together. The several companies were mixed at random by the waves. They waded now breast-high, now up to their chin, and as the ground failed them they fell, some never more to rise. Their cries and mutual encouragements availed them nothing against the prevailing and inexorable waves, no difference between the coward and the brave, the wise and the foolish, none between circumspection and chance. 
but all were equally involved in the invincible violence of the flood. Vitellius, at length, struggling into an eminence, drew the legions thither, where they passed the cold night without fire, and destitute of every convenience, most of them naked or lambed, not less miserable than men enclosed by an enemy, for even to such remained the consolation of an honourable death. But here was destruction, every way void of glory. The land returned with the day, and they marched to the river Vidris, whither Germanicus had gone with the fleet. There the two legions were again embarked, when fame had given them for drowned. Nor was their escape believed till Germanicus and the army were seen to return. Stratinius, who in the meanwhile had been sent before to receive Sagimarus, the brother of Segestes, a prince willing to surrender himself, brought him and his son to the city of the Ubians. Both were pardoned, the father freely, the son with more difficulty, because he was said to have insulted the corpse of Varus. For the rest, Spain, Italy, and both the Gauls strove with emulation to supply the losses of the army, and offered arms, horses, money, according as each abounded. Germanicus applauded their zeal, but accepted only the horses and arms, for the service of war. With his own money he relieved the necessities of the soldiers, and to soften also by his kindness the memory of the late havoc, he visited the wounded, extolled the exploits of particulars, viewed their wounds, with hopes encouraged some, with a sense of glory animated others, and by affability and tenderness confirmed them all in devotion to himself and to his fortune in war. The ornaments of triumph were this year decreed to Aulus Caecina, Lucius Apronius, and Caius Silius, for their services under Germanicus. The title of father of his country, so often offered by the people to Tiberius, was rejected by him, nor would he permit swearing upon his acts, though the same was voted by the Senate. Against it he urged the instability of all mortal things, and that the higher he was raised the more slippery he stood. But for all this ostentation of a popular spirit he acquired not the reputation of possessing it, for he had revived the law concerning violated majesty, a law which in the days of our ancestors had indeed the same name, but implied different arraignments and crimes, namely those against the state, as when an army was betrayed abroad, when seditions were raised at home. In short, when the public was faithlessly administered, and the majesty of the Roman people were debased. These were actions, and actions were punished, but words were free. Augustus was the first who brought libels under the penalties of this wrested law, incensed as he was by the insolence of Cassius Severus, who had in his writings wantonly defamed men and ladies of illustrious quality. Tiberius, too, afterwards, when Pompeius Macer, the praetor, consulted him, whether process should be granted upon this law, answered that the laws must be executed. He also was exasperated by satirical verses written by unknown authors and dispersed, exposing his cruelty, his pride, and his mind unnaturally alienated from his mother. It will be worth while to relate here the pretended crimes charged upon Philanius and Rubrius, two Roman knights of small fortunes that hence may be seen from what beginnings, and by how much dark art of Tiberius, this grievous mischief crept in, how it was again restrained, how at last it blazed out and consumed all things. To Philanius was objected by his accusers that, amongst the adorers of Augustus, who went in fraternities from house to house, he had admitted one Cassius, a mimic and prostitute, and having sold his gardens, had likewise with them sold the statue of Augustus. The crime imputed to Rubrius was that he had sworn falsely by the divinity of Augustus. 
When these accusations were known to Tiberius, he wrote to the consuls, that heaven was not therefore decreed to his father, that the worship of him might be a snare to the citizens of Rome, that Cassius the player was wont to assist with others of his profession at the interludes consecrated by his mother to the memory of Augustus. Neither did it affect religion, that his effigies, like other images of the gods, was comprehended in the sale of houses and gardens. As to the false swearing by his name, it was to be deemed the same as if Rubrius had profaned the name of Jupiter, but to the gods belonged the avenging of injuries done to the gods. Not long after, Granius Marcellus, praetor of Bithynia, was charged with high treason by his own quester Sepio Crispinus. Romanus Hispo, the pleader, supported the charge. This Sepio began a course of life which, through the miseries of the times and the bold wickedness of men, became afterwards famous. At first, needy and obscure, but of busy spirit, he made court to the cruelty of the prince by occult informations, and presently, as an open accuser, grew terrible to every distinguished Roman. This procured him credit with one, hatred from all, and made a precedent to be followed by others, who from poverty became rich, from being condemned dreadful, and in the destruction which they brought upon others found at last their own. He accused Marcellus of malignant words concerning Tiberius an inevitable crime, when the accuser, collecting all the most detestable parts of the prince's character, alleged them as the expressions of the accused, for, because they were true, they were believed to have been spoken. To this Hispo added that the statue of Marcellus was by him placed higher than those of the Caesars, and that having cut off the head of Augustus, he had in the room of it set the head of Tiberius. This enraged him so, that, breaking silence, he cried, he would himself in this cause give his vote explicitly, and under the tie of an oath. By this he meant to force the assent of the rest of the Senate. There remained, even then, some faint traces of expiring liberty. Hence Senius Piso asked him, In what place, Caesar, will you choose to give your opinion? If first I shall have your example to follow, if last I fear I may ignorantly dissent from you. The words pierced him, but he bore them, the rather as he was ashamed of his unwary transport. And he suffered the accused to be acquitted of the high treason. To try him for the public money was referred to the proper judges. Nor sufficed it Tiberius to assist in the deliberations of the Senate only. He likewise sat in the seats of justice, but always on one side, because he would not dispossess the praetor of his chair. And by his presence there many ordinances were established against the intrigues and solicitations of the grandees. But while private justice was thus promoted, public liberty was likewise overthrown. About this time Pius Aurelius, the senator, whose house, yielding to the pressure of the public road and aqueducts, had fallen, complained to the Senate, and prayed relief. A suit opposed by the praetors who managed the treasury, but he was relieved by Tiberius, who ordered him the price of his house, for he was fond of being liberal upon honest occasions, a virtue which he long retained, even after he had utterly abandoned all other virtues. Upon Propertius Cellar, once praetor, but now desiring leave to resign the dignity of senator as a burden to his poverty, he bestowed a thousand great sesterces upon ample information that Seller's necessities were derived from his father. Others, who attempted the same thing, he ordered to lay their condition before the Senate, and from an affectation of severity was thus austere, even where he acted with uprightness. Hence the rest preferred poverty and silence to begging and relief. The same year the Tiber, being swelled with continual rains, overflowed the level parts of the city, and the common destruction of men and houses followed the returning flood. Hence Asinius Gallus moved that the Sibylline books might be consulted. Tiberius opposed it, equally smothering all inquiries whatsoever, whether into matters human or divine. 
To Ateus Capito, however, and Lucius Aruntius, was committed the care of restraining the river within its banks. The provinces of Achaea and Macedon, praying relief from their public burdens, were for the present discharged of their proconsular government, and subjected to the emperor's lieutenants. In the entertainment of gladiators at Rome, Drusus presided, it was exhibited in the name of Germanicus and his own, and at it he manifested too much lust of blood, even of the blood of slaves, a quality terrible to the populace, and hence his father was said to have reproved him. His own absence from these shows was variously construed, by some ascribed to his impatience of a crowd, by others to his reserved and solitary genius, and his fear of an unequal comparison with Augustus, who was wont to be a cheerful spectator there. But that he thus purposely furnished matter for exposing the cruelty of his son there, and for raising him popular hate, is what I would not believe, though this too was asserted. The dissensions of the theatre, begun last year, broke out now more violently, with the slaughter of several, not of the people only, but of the soldiers, with that of a centurion, nay, a tribune of the praetorian cohort, was wounded. Whilst they were securing the magistrates from insults, and quelling the licentiousness of the rabble, this riot was canvassed in the senate, and votes were passed for empowering the praetors to whip the players. Haterius Agrippa, tribune of the people, opposed it, and was sharply reprimanded by a speech of Asinius Gallus. Tiberius was silent, and to the senate allowed these empty apparitions of liberty. The opposition, however, prevailed, in reverence to the authority of Augustus, who, upon a certain occasion, had given his judgment that players were exempt from stripes. Nor would Tiberius assume to violate any words of his. To limit the wages of players, and restrain the licentiousness of their partisans, many decrees were made. The most remarkable were that no senators should enter the house of a pantomime, no Roman knight attend them abroad, they should show nowhere but in the theatre, and the praetors should have power to punish with exile any insolence in the spectators. The Spaniards were, upon their petition, permitted to build a temple to Augustus in the colony of Tarragon, an example for all the provinces to follow. In answer to the people, who prayed to be relieved from the centesima, a tax of one in the hundred, established at the end of the civil wars, upon all vendible commodities, Tiberius by an edict declared, that upon this tax depended the fund for maintaining the army, nor even thus was the commonwealth equal to the expense, if the veterans were dismissed before their twentieth year. So that the concessions made them during the late sedition to discharge them finally at the end of sixteen years, as they were made through necessity, were for the future abolished. It was next proposed to the Senate by Aruntius and Ateus whether, in order to restrain the overflowing of the Tiber, the channels of several rivers and lakes by which it was swelled must not be diverted. Upon this question the deputies of several cities and colonies were heard. The Florentines besought that the bed of the Clannis might not be turned into their river Arnus, for that the same would prove their utter ruin. The like plea was urged by the Interamnites, since the most fruitful plains in Italy would be lost if, according to the project, the Nar, branched out into rivulets, overflowed them. Nor were the Raetinians less earnest against stopping the outlets of the Lake Valinus into the Nar. Otherwise they said it would break over its banks, and stagnate all the adjacent country. The direction of nature was best in all natural things. It was she that had appointed to rivers their courses and discharges, and set their limits as well as their sources. Regard, too, was to be paid to the religion of our Latin allies, who, esteeming the rivers of their country sacred, had to them dedicated priests and altars and groves. Nay, the Tiber himself, when bereft of his auxiliary streams, would flow with diminished grandeur. Now, whether it were that the prayers of the colonies, or the difficulty of the work, or the influence of superstition prevailed, 
it is certain the opinion of Piso was followed that nothing should be altered. To Popeius Sabinus was continued his province of Mosia, and to it was added that of Achaea and Macedon. This, too, was part of the politics of Tiberius, to prolong governments, and maintain the same men in the same armies, or civil employments for the most part, to the end of their lives, with what view is not agreed. Some think that from an impatience of returning cares he was for making whatever he once liked perpetual. Others, that from the malignity of his invidious nature he regretted the preferring of many. There are some who believe that as he had a crafty penetrating spirit, so he had an understanding ever irresolute and perplexed. So much is certain that he never courted any eminent virtue, yet hated vice. From the best men he dreaded danger to himself, and disgrace to the public from the worst. This hesitation mastered him so much at last that he committed foreign governments to some whom he meant never to suffer to leave Rome. Concerning the management of consular elections, either then or afterwards under Tiberius, I can affirm scarce anything, such as the variance about it, not only amongst historians, but even in his own speeches. Sometimes, not naming the candidates, he described them by their family, by their life and manners, and by the number of their campaigns, so as it might be apparent whom he meant. Again, avoiding even to describe them, he exhorted the candidates not to disturb the election by their intrigues, and promised himself to take care of their interests. But chiefly he used to declare that to him none had signified their pretensions, but such whose names he had delivered to the consuls, others too were at liberty to offer the like pretensions, if they trusted to the favour of the senate or their own merits. Specious words, but entirely empty or full of fraud, and by how much they were covered with the greater guise of liberty, by so much threatening a more hasty and devouring bondage. End of section 18